CMS Real Deal podcast where we take a step back from the legal nitty-gritty and provide insight into issues affecting the property industry. I'm Danny Drummond-Bressington and today I'm joined by Dave Coplin of The Envisioners, a consultancy practice which aims to help companies get more from the incredible potential that technology has to offer. Welcome Dave. Hi Danny. It's great that you can join us today. Um, I want to sort of start digging in in a minute into some of your thoughts on modern business and how technology can, can help. But first, I want to talk about your job title because I think it's great. <laughs> Chief Envisioning, Envisioning Officer. What, what does that mean? Well, there, there is a bit of a story about that in, in that um, I, I worked for Microsoft for 12 years and I worked for Microsoft at a period where the media, let, let's just say that they were less interested in Microsoft because this is a time of the cool kids like Google and Apple and Facebook. Uh, and so me and a buddy of mine who ran the business audience PR, uh, we decided we were going to create this comedy uh, position of the chief envisioning officer, which was essentially we were baiting the media because we knew that they would think that we were serious. Yeah. And, and all I really wanted to do, and, and it's really sort of the whole sort of mission of, of what I'm about, is we spend so long talking about the technology, we don't talk enough about the humans that use it. And I know that the future belongs to the humans that can use the technology better or, or in a different way. Yeah. And so we created this comedy job title and this comedy role uh, to, to pivot away from the technology. And, and when I left Microsoft a, a year ago to continue the work, it just made sense that I would call the company the Envisioners and therefore keep the job title. Fantastic. So CEO, Chief Envisioning Absolutely. Officer. Um, and you talked about technology enhancing humans. And I think one of the, uh, how it enhances business, one of the things we're seeing that is in this sort of um, working environment being collaborative and flexible. And we talk about how technology improves our lives, but it seems to me that at the moment a lot of the debate sort of focuses around, you know, there's a blurring between home and work because there's no boundaries. Technology has taken down all of those boundaries. We're always accessible. How, how can we ensure that we we are flexible yet have these boundaries or some structure around it? It's a great question and, and it's one that I spent a lot of time thinking about. I actually wrote a book about this sort of the nub of the problem that you've talked about. And the book's called The Rise of the Humans because the answer lies with the humans and not the technology. It is brilliant that we can be almost anywhere on the planet and be accessible to our work and our friends and family. But we have, to be, we, we have to be mindful of that, and we have to be the ones that choose to do it. And part of the problem, you know, I come from, you know, 30 years in IT, and I remember when we first got things like mobile email, and it was so exciting, and we would be on email all the time, and then before you know it, 10 years had passed, and you've just been working all the time. That's not the gift that the technology was supposed to bring. The technology is supposed to open up opportunities in both our professional and personal lives. And I, you know, we talk about work-life balance a lot, and I don't think there's such a thing as work-life balance. I think it's, it's feathered, and it always has been. Yeah. And what the technology should do is enable you to be in the right location at the right time to do the work or engage with your family that is going to have the most impact and bring you the most value. But the technology can't do that on its own. You know, email's a classic example. We've yeah. all got too many emails. The reasons we've got too many emails is because we send too many bloody emails. <laughs> yes. you know, and, and so if you want, you know, we are the yeah. people that press the buttons. The technology facilitates that. But if you want to be able to have, uh, you know, use technology to enable you to make the choice, we humans, we have to take the first step. And sometimes there's a culture yeah. uh, that means, you know, I, I've been in organizations and I've worked with clients where the culture is very much, you know, if I send you an email at 11 o'clock at night, I expect an answer. Mm -hmm. We've got to have an open discussion about whether that's right yeah. or not. And there might be special circumstances where it is, maybe you're working on a big bid and it's coming yeah. to the end of that, that makes sense. But if that's your normal way of operating, 
I'd argue it's maybe not as, as efficient as it should be. And certainly over the long term, it's going to lead to burnout of people. So what you're saying, we have to take a reality check. And actually, are we, are we creating these monsters of, of email deluge? Because you're absolutely right. I notice it. If I respond every five minutes to an email, I'm setting an expectation of the person who's receiving that, that they're going to get that. Exactly. Where actually, you, you, sometimes you don't need to be responding every five minutes. Absolutely. And sometimes you don't need to send the email in the first place. Yeah. And that's part of, you know, what, what am I sending this email for? Is, is there a bit of information that I need from a specific individual? In which case, send an email. Yeah. You know, is the individual sat next to me in the office? You know, there's another yes. one, right? Yeah. So, but but you know, if you look at things like flexible working as well, the technology is supposed to open up our choice about being able to work in the right location for the work that we're about to do. But again, the culture of the organisation has to follow that through as well. So, you know, I, I know lots of organisations who say they do flexible working, but then equally will send a memo around saying, you know, if I can't see Dave at his seat at his desk, then he's yeah. probably not working. So this cultural aspect becomes really crucial to the success of the technology. Yeah, because we, we ran a survey last year when we looked at the, the rise of the office, the changing nature of the office, our smart, um, healthy, agile um, thought leadership piece. And you... It was quite incredible. So 82% of our respondents found that working in, in a flexible space was appealing. And from what you're saying, it's, you know, we've got to engage with that. We've got to have some real debate and rules around how we do make that flexible as opposed to it's just all one big blur. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you very quickly come to a conversation about productivity. And, and productivity, to me, we have to think of it in a number of levels, but in particular there's two. Um, I think about shallow productivity, and that's the shallow productivity that we kind of achieve in an open plan workspace, where yeah. it's all about have you got the file from the client, or did you, what did the what was the conversation with the client? Where so it's very sort of backward and forth collaboration, and then there's deep productivity, and deep productivity is when you are writing the report or preparing the client presentation, and that's the moment where you actually need to absolutely focus on one thing and one thing only. And the challenge is the office space that we typically create doesn't allow for both of those types of productivity. It's yeah. kind of all an environment for shallow productivity. Yeah. What flexible working and technology is supposed to enable is for you to say, do you know what, today I have to write the client report. And as a result of that, I won't go into the office or I'll go into a special part of the office yeah. where I won't be disturbed and I can just get on with it. Or maybe I'm going to do it at home or go to a library, whatever it is. But the point is, it's empowering you as an individual, as an employee, to decide, based on what I'm about to do today, where is the best location? Also, yeah. what's the best time of day? Yeah. You know, you, some of us uh, have kids or other um, sort of commitments that we have to deal with. And quite often, my most productive time, if I want to be deeply productive, it's very late at night. Yeah. It's when everybody's asleep and I've got the house to myself and I can, no one's sending me and I can just crack yeah. on. And again, so what's the work environment that yeah. allows for that? How do we think about flexibility, not just in terms of space and location, but also in terms of time? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And that's one of the things I often say to people, you know, I'm an early morning person. So my best time is at eight o'clock in the morning. And that's before everybody's come in yeah. and the, the noise levels have gone. But I don't expect everybody else in my team to be in at eight because that's that's the wrong thing. And I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's having that conversation and everybody being honest about you. Know, as long as... The clients are getting what we need, yeah. and they're not. Um, we're not not delivering. 
if you work it best at 11 o'clock at night, that's fine. You don't need to be in at 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I work... Um, uh, the guy that I did the stuff with, Microsoft, is now at Dropbox. And one of the things that Dropbox do, like, which I really love, is they have... I forget the specific name. I think it's called a work with me document. And what they do is they say, look, this is my work style. So I'm an early morning person mm-hmm. or I'm a late night person. And this is how I like to work. And these are the things that yeah. you do. And so that everybody has an expectation of how other people work rather than no expectation. But we generally expect yeah. you to be nine to five in the office. And this is all about collaboration. Yeah. And it's all about empowering people to, to be as productive as they can be in a way that suits them best. It, it, just hearing you speak and all of those things and, and, and companies like what, Dropbox and how they're doing that. Actually, we're just at the beginning of this journey. We, you know, we, we're talking about offices. We've moved from cellular primarily a lot of um, driven by cost because you can't have uh, individual offices but actually we need to take it to that next step further absolutely and um, and, and, and you know i have a, a long rant that goes on for over a decade <laughs> about the open plan office yeah and, and the open plan office is fit for purpose for shallow productivity end of yeah. story that's it um, and, and we need to recognise that. Yeah. I also get that it is the cheapest way of providing uh, accommodation for employees. I get that and I understand that. But what we've got to do, and this is, comes back to this concept of productivity, if we want the right outcome from those employees, you've got to provide an environment or at least a culture that yeah. supports them to be in the right place for the work that they have to do. Oh, interesting. Um, can I start and look at data now? Because I yeah. think that's another, another aspect of technology. I mean, there is clearly so much data being created everything that we're doing now on our mobile phones and walking around we are just creating amounts of data that i can't even comprehend do you do you think that people are harnessing it or um we've got, we it feels like we're missing a trick that businesses perhaps have got a long way to go yeah well I don't know. I think we're starting down the journey, and I actually think that we're a lot further down the road than many people perhaps realise. And, and again, you know, in my career and in my life, I've spent a lot of time trying to convince people about the, the value of data. And remember, data for me, for me at least is the is the fuel of the future. Data is the thing through which AI, artificial intelligence, works. Yep. So the more data we have, the better that AI can be. And whereas even even as much as little as two years ago, I would be knocking on your door, maybe as the CEO of a company, saying, look, you really got to start thinking about this. And they'd be like, what? What's that about? Oh, tell me more. It's not happening anymore. They get it. It's like, Dave, you don't want to sell me. Help me do it. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I'm on the board of a big pub and restaurant company in the UK. The conversation with those guys is not, let me tell you about the value of data. It's like, so where are we going to apply it? Yeah. And we're looking at things like, for example, we've realised that if we take um, uh, weather forecasts, if we take uh, uh, sporting arrangements, you know, sort of the, the future sporting arrangements and also future travel arrangements, think about weekend closures and all that in London, and we then add to that historical business performance, we can start to predict the number of people we're going to need wow. in an outlet on a given day. You know, and we think there are probably uh, you know, m- maybe as much as millions of pounds of saving a year in that kind of prediction. We're doing it with things like fraud detection or stock and waste management. Yeah. This is a pub and restaurant company. It's not yeah. a high-tech company. No. And, and I just think you know, we're seeing this stuff now becoming real. And, yeah. and in other areas, we've got organisations. Rolls-Royce uh, Jet Engines is another good example. They use this ability to predict outages on their jet engines such that they no longer sell jet engines. They sell you a subscription to flight time. 
and, and which is fundamentally different. Yeah. And because we, you know, data has enabled us to be able to do this. So, you know, I have this glib line that every company these days should think of themselves as a data company. Yeah. What they've got to do is start to think about, you know, what's the sort of top three questions that, as a business, you'd love to be able to answer. And when you know what those questions are. What's the data that you would need from which to answer them? And then where is that data? How could you get it? That's the beginning of a data strategy that, that we can use as organisations. Great. Oh, fascinating. To take that away and then uh, talk to the powers that be. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you said data is the fuel of, of AI and AI is everybody's talking about it. It seems to be certainly in the legal industry a race to who's got the best AI product to help them be the best lawyer. So looking five years into the future, what do you think the role and impact of AI is going to be? So, so there's two ways to answer this question. There's the future that I hope will happen yeah. and there's the future that, that could happen. And, and let's deal with the future that could happen because it's the one that the media talk about all the time and it's also the one that typically pop culture presents to us yeah. uh, and it's the dystopian future, right? And it's the future where I, AI says, actually, we don't need lawyers, thanks yeah. very much, because I've got an algorithm. You know, yeah. Why do I need you? Um, you get it wrong. The algorithm doesn't. Um, and, and I don't think that's right because in, in, you know, if you distill all that stuff down, what it really says is that we are you know, pitched in an adversarial battle, humans versus machines, and ultimately the machines will win because the Terminator told us it would be so. Yeah. And that's wrong. You know, I, I would argue that it's never been, and we, with any of the technology that we've had as humans going back through the entirety of, of, sort of our society, it's never been about an adversarial battle. It's about how can we harness the potential of that technology. So, you know, in your industry, I'm telling you now, AI is going to disrupt at least about 30 to 40% of what you do. Now, I'm not saying that means 30 to 40% of people are going to be out of jobs, but mm. 30 to 40% of what you do could probably be easily automated. Yeah, and I think people actually recognise that. We're having that debate internally because there is stuff that, you know, historically, you know, when I started 20 years ago, was trainees churning yeah. pages. Totally. Actually, there will be some programme soon that can do that. So, so the million-dollar question is if I can save you 30 to 40% of your time or your operational cost... What are you going to do with that saving? Go out and do new things and exactly. explore new opportunities. And, and, and that's the potential. That's the, the future that I hope will happen where we humans, and whether it's in the legal industry or beyond, say, do you know what? Brilliant. I'm going to stand on the shoulders of the digital giants. I'm going to use that 30% to extend my reach, to achieve more than I could have done as a result. I'm going to do the things that the algorithms can't do that will make the overall outcome yeah. even better. Well, that sounds exciting to me, to free yeah. up time to go off. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah. However, if, if you then play that in, in different businesses and say, well, actually, you know, the automation I'm going to bring is going to deliver you a 30% operational cost saving, there are many sectors in the UK specifically, and especially right now with all of the chaos that's going on, that's 30%, oh, I'm yeah. having that, I'm going to bank that. I think that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. You need to bank some of the saving, but you've also got to reinvest. We're going to have to reskill. There's going to be many people who will be displaced by this, yeah. and what we need to do is to make sure that they're not left you know, on the, on the bylines, but in fact are reskilled such that they continue to add value to our society and to the organisation that employs them. And, you know, your, your industry is going to be a classic example of this. So, yeah. you know, given that the, the bottom tiers of the, of the industry probably can be automated, 
what does that mean and how do we help people to accelerate through those bottom tiers so that they're doing the stuff yeah it's, it's upskilling people to do other things exactly absolutely. exactly yeah. but it takes a bold um ceo or senior partner to do that mm-hmm. um, in, in an in economy like the one that we have right now so that's the thing where we always have to keep our eyes on the prize this is never about can never be about standing still it's also been it's always got to be about so what else could we do how much further could we do this yeah. with a view to the outcome that we get from it so just talked about five years hence what about next year what's on your agenda for next year well you know more of the same in a sense you know I'm now at a point where I don't have to sell the concept of AI anymore um, and there are probably two key areas of focus for me now that AI not isn't just a real thing but is an everyday thing we all use it many many times a day we're starting to see some of the flaws that the approach brings. And the classic example, I'll give you two examples. One is bias. So because AI needs data from which to learn, and data is intrinsically generated by humans and therefore is full of human biases. So a lovely study that said uh, humans carry on 188 separate cognitive biases with them. Fantastic. Um, So whenever I use data to train an algorithm, I'm inhaling all of that bias too. Uh, that's not a great outcome and no. it just propagates you know, historical problems and whether it's about diversity at work, whether it's about racism, all these sorts of issues, we have to figure that out. And you know, the AI scientists are helping to figure that out, but as a society, we too have also got to agree on what kind of society do we want and where do we want the biases reflected, where do we want them removed. So that's a big sort of ethical question. Yeah. The other big sort of area of debate is around this thing called explainability, and I sort of talk about it like a black box. We're at a point now where the algorithms, the the data that they use and the number of signals they take for the data are so complicated that no single human being can comprehend how the algorithm derived its decision. And whilst that might be okay if you're using the algorithm to buy a mountain bike or choose a restaurant, what if you're deciding a legal outcome? What if I'm receiving surgery on the basis of whether what does that mean? And, yeah. and, and what do you mean you can't explain how the algorithm said that this is the yeah. right thing to do? So this area of explainability becomes critical. So in the next year, it's about how do we evolve and emerge? What's the right kind of ethical and moral and regulatory framework that makes this possible and makes it right? The second piece, and, and it's it's work that you know happens now, but the payoff is probably in a few decades, is... You know, I have a, a clear view of the world that I think, my, you know, my son's 13, right? Yeah. So when he enters his world of work five, maybe, um, you know, eight years from now, whatever it is, I know his world of work is going to be fundamentally different to the skills that he's been given today. Right now, like every other kid in this country and, you know, certainly around the Western world, he is being trained to be a Victorian uh, production line worker, yeah. um, which frankly is not going to be very helpful to him. And so what he needs is a whole different set of skills and what his generation needs is a whole different set of skills. But that's a big topic. Yeah. And, and how do we help, you know, certainly the educational establishment, but more importantly, people like parents who, you know, are worried about the future for their yeah. kids and what kind of skills. Well, and so how do we bring that story to them? It, it's, it's the worry about technology. You know, you see a lot of negative press stories, but also it's the understanding because, you know, as a parent myself, when you look at it, you don't, you know, I understand a bit of technology, but not to the... the the depth that my children are going to do in 10 years time and that gap between how technology worked when we were growing up and what we were exposed to and how it is then it's just going to get bigger and bigger and how do we bridge that gap exactly and and you know i i actually think in in a sense the answer is really simple 
it, of course it's not in terms of how you do it, but you know, if we think we're going to live in a world of data and AI, there are lots of things that AI is really good at, like calculation and like storing lots of information. There are some things that it's rubbish at, yeah. like creativity, empathy. Yeah. You know, I've got algorithms that can detect your emotion, but don't really understand what it means. Yeah. So if we can help our kids and that gener our younger generation, and also our ourselves, because our workforce is going to change as well, yeah. develop skills along creativity, along empathy, and also to be accountable for the algorithms, uh, sort of supported by, you, you know, and it sounds a bit trite, but resilience and lifelong learning, um, then actually we're giving ourselves the best opportunity to succeed in the future. The, sort of the challenge, and this is the, the issue that we, we all face, is if the, the World Economic Forum put out a lovely report called The Future of Jobs a year or so ago, and in it was a lovely statistic, which was 63% of all of the kids going into education today will go on to do jobs that we haven't invented yet. How do we That's prepare amazing. them? <laughs> and, and the thing is, we prepare them and, and be, uh, knowing that their world is going to change. And so the skills move from, I need you to be able to weld or code or, uh, you know, write well, to yeah. uh, actually the core skills like empathy and creativity, um, critical thinking, because those are the things that will help us. And the other thing to sort of bear in mind about the future, and certainly the future of AI, it's not like this is a, mo a single moment in time where the AI revolution happens, we reskill and then we're done. This is going to happen every year, right? Yeah. So you may retrain to do this job and then AI will come and automate that. And so you've got to retrain and do another job. So this is a very different world that we're all going to be in, our kids are going to be in. And so how do we prepare them? And I think we prepare them by having this conversation right now. And it is, you know, helping people to understand the potential. Talking to people in a sense that, you know, my, my industry, my technology industry, we've always been really good at, we should get kids to code. Well, geez, what do you think one of the first things we're going to automate is going to be? It's going to be coding. So yeah. having kids who code is helpful in the short term, but not in the long term. Having kids who can think for themselves, who can work with other people, who can communicate and collaborate, that's what we're going to need. Well, they're all the valuable skills and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And is that any different today? You know, what makes yeah. your business successful? Yes, there's some technical skills, but actually it's, it's how about you communicate. People. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it is just about having that conversation and seeing if we can move that forward. Well... Dave, that was fascinating and thank you so much for giving your time up and joining us today. Um, that's blown me away and plenty of food for thought. You're really thank welcome. Thanks for having me on, Danny. Thanks very much.